0: Welcome to the acclaimed podcast, Deep Dive with Andy and the White Whale. Welcome to the Deep Dive. I'm uh, I'm pretty excited for today's episode, Andy. Uh, this is uh, a lot of thoughts, a lot of uh, ideas, a lot of concepts. I've been dying to talk to that uh, directly relate to current world events, which have kind of totally taken over everyone's life. Uh, and uh, I'm ready to put my data science hat on. Are you ready?
1: yes, yes i'm I was hesitant, but i'm I'm ready because I think it's worth talking about a lot of the data that's flying around right now because even even you and i we we look at some of the articles and studies that are coming out right now and have to maybe don't have the best grasp on some of the information,
0: yeah, there's a lot of noise out there. There feels like there's a lot of bad data. feels like there's a lot of bad science. feels like. Everywhere you look, it's another Dunning-Kruger example. Another, you know, somebody kind of wading into the uh, waters, you know, pretending to be an expert or kind of trying to show expertise when there is none. Uh, and uh, so we're not going to do that today. We are going to steer clear of, you know, trying to, you know, showing our ass and, and really saying stupid stuff today. But we're going to put our put our science hats on and we're going to dive into the depth of uncertainty. Really, the whole concept today that we want to try to cover is uncertainty. Um, it's first and foremost in the minds of a lot of us who are kind of, you know, very serious sports betters because uh, you know, it's, it, it's, an, it's a critical and key uh, factor in a lot of, uh, you know, what, it, what it comes down to handicapping. Um, and uh, you know, we're not going to pr- do a lot of predicting about what's going to happen uh, oh, as no. we go forward. with Almost predict- not you know, we're,
1: we're not qualified.
0: No, we can talk about the range of outcomes that the experts have laid out and why things are what they are, and, and uh, you know how we end up on either end of the you know spectrum there, and you know what's real and what's ridiculous. Then um, we want to kind of try to qualify, you know, what what data is worth reading. You know, how how do you you know sort the how do you evaluate the good and, and the bad in a landscape where
1: expertise is very difficult to identify. And, I'm gonna st- I'm gonna stop you. I don't think we're qualified. I don't think we have a big enough grasp on the math. Mm. We need to bring someone in. That's a great point. So to address uh, address
0: these topics some more, uh, we are graciously bringing back good friend of the pod, Plus EV Analytics,
2: Matt. Welcome back to the Deep Dive. Thanks for having me on, guys. This is my second time, so does that qualify me as an official friend of the pod? Without question, yeah. You should. The shirt is in the mail. Um, that is friend wonderful. Yeah. i always wanted yep. to be a friend of an inan- inanimate object. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> good to be back. I wish we had some sports to talk about these days, but uh, you know, we 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 do what we can in uh, to to fill the time with some content in these times and. Uh, you know, I'm going to start by saying I'm not qualified either. I am not a medical doctor. I am not an epidemiologist. Uh, I am going to do my best to uh, to lend my expertise in probability and uncertainty to uh, some of the events that are that are facing the world today. I love it. Well, uh, it is it is a bummer we can't handicap sports. It is a bummer
0: that uh, yeah we're we're not going to get into the to, to the fat tail distribution associated with uh, virtual marble racing. Uh, or, uh, or any of so the other. I've watched so much Marvel
1: Racing, Are I feel shitty watching it. But it, it's like, well, I kind of, well, once you, st- and if you start, you can't just drop out and be like, well, I don't care who won. <laughs> you have to finish it. <laughs> no, I've watched some eSports. Like, I've, I ended up just taking a bunch of withdrawals, so I don't bet on Belarusian hockey and eSports, but.
0: Nice. I'm but, pretty much uh, cold turkey out. I haven't made a bet in weeks. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. No, I guess,
1: I'm, I guess good, yeah, I will but. say that there is the draft. The draft, we'll talk a little more about that coming up here. We good do have some draft props that we are going to get into regular season win total openers, which are up in a few places. We'll get into that soon. But, yeah, for now, basically all it is is looking ahead to the NFL and possibly some other sports over the summer. We talked they got about elections tonight. going on. there's all kinds you, know, of what, stuff. you can bet That's on the elections, knows. but yeah sure the, you, can. you know the euro Euro and the Olympics were supposed to take up a lot of the summer before we got to football. So we will find something else to talk about. and yeah, today should be good because just I mean previously just hitting record here, we had a pretty good conversation off air about a lot of the a lot of the topics we want to hit on.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, it's just it, it's uh, very uncertain times. Great, uh, you know, the uncertainty plays an enormous role in sort of what's going on right now across multiple spaces. Uh, And I think uh, this is a good time to address this. I, you know, this was on the Evergreen pod series. At some point, we were going to really dive into uncertainty as it relates to sports betting. But I think it's a perfect crossover for talking about what's going on with current events. Um, And uh, speaking of, uh, our friend Matt, uh, you are a Canadian. Uh, How are things going for you guys? Everybody safe and and happy in your household and in your area up there in Canada?
2: Uh, yeah, we're doing about as well as could possibly be expected, given that we're uh, just coming to the end of week two of, of uh, pretty much a full-scale lockdown here. I've got a, a three-year-old and a six-year-old at home, so uh, we're, we're uh, watching a lot of movies, playing a lot of video games, and uh, really hoping we can get back to normal sooner rather than later. But uh, everyone's healthy, all things considered. We're uh, we're doing okay up here.
0: Mm, that's good to hear. And same, same for you, Andy, in Minnesota?
1: Yeah. You know, I don't know if I mentioned it on the pod, but we did ship the kids away because my wife works in a hospital, so we're just kind of resigned to maybe we'll probably get it if it's if it's going to spike up here in Minnesota. So, kids in are Italy. Did you? Yeah, yeah, no, we haven't, and we haven't traveled much. It's nice, but there were there are a lot of travelers that come to Rochester for the clinic, so. I worry that it might end up being a little worse here. It hasn't been bad yet, but yeah, like World War II, you send the kids out to the country to live with their grandparents while the Germans bomb the city. <laughs> it's it's like the beginning of a movie. But yeah, either way, it's been it's been pretty calm here. Minnesota is doing a light shutdown come Friday at midnight. So we'll see uh, how essential I am. <clears throat>
0: That's all good to hear. Um, California, in general, pretty uh, pretty surreal. Uh, the degree to which they have completely shut down the entire uh, state economy and people moving and doing anything really, uh, to even you know, short of you know just kind of daily outdoor recreation and exercise and things like that and going to the grocery store. There's really absolutely nothing happening here, uh, and it's wild. Um, although I'm looking, you know, just kind of looking at the numbers uh, and looking at L.A. relative to New York City. Uh, there's a, some stuff to be hopeful for, at least that California may kind of, you know, avoid, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the real hell that's going on in New York City right now. So, uh, with all that said, um, we'll pivot back to uncertainty, uh, and you know, before we get into the juicy stuff, I think it's worth starting with some of the basics. Uh, and something that's come up a lot in our evergreen pods over the course of this off season so far is epistemic uncertainty. Um, I guess Andy is uh, have have we have we done a like a definition of epistemic uncertainty and kind of carefully defined well this is what it is and this is how it's different than randomness.
1: Uh, I don't know if we. I mean, we kind of touched on it.
0: Okay, I mean, well it just
1: it's just the uncertainty. You. Know, in a model, I suppose.
0: Yeah. So the best, I guess, you know, my, my again, my, uh, a lot of my education and uh, experience
1: with this stuff. Let comes math from, define it. Jesus, yeah, this comes, go cool. no, on. You I, guys I, are doing I'll,
0: great. Carry on. on. I'll tip, I'll tip, <laughs> I'll tip the, uh, I'll tip the scales in a second here. But I mean, really, the epistemic uncertainty, as far as I can tell you, is just the lack of knowledge. Basically, there are things that we don't know. Uh, and, you know, those key, uh, you know, parameter uncertainty, things that we just we don't have a good uh, grasp on either, because of you know, for for a lot of reasons, uh, and it reflects uh, you know a a band of error around any given prediction. And this is different than aleatory variability, which is specifically randomness that that is not related to a lack of understanding or a lack of knowledge. It's just the randomness that comes along with natural events. Uh, and, you know, I think, I don't know, I guess, Matt, from your standpoint, like, is, is there, are there some examples you can point to in the sports, sports world about epistemic uncertainty? And, um, you know, I guess, how is it captured in a model? Why do we want to reduce it? And what are some key ways to go about doing so?
2: Well, I think my work here is done. I mean, you, you, guys, you guys pretty much <laughs> nailed it. And, uh you know, don't think, Drew, I haven't heard you, uh, you dropped the E-bomb a couple of times on the pod in the past, epistemic uncertainty. And I, every time I hear you say it, I kind of feel like a proud father watching his son take his first steps. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we've had a lot of, uh, group chats on the, on the topic and I'm, I'm happy to, to hear you, you, uh, really using it in, uh, in the correct way. So good for, good for you guys on that. So yeah, you pretty much nailed it. I'll, I'll, I'll put a little bit more of a, of a box around what you just said um so any prediction that someone makes will carry some uncertainty in it and that uncertainty comes from two distinct sources so the first one you used a fancy word aleatory uncertainty (laughs) i would have called it uh i would have called it process uncertainty because i'm proud of my canadian accent but we'll call it process uncertainty for uh for your american uh, audience and that's the inherent randomness in uh, how a system works so If we think about a roulette wheel uh, without getting into quantum mechanics we can think of a roulette wheel as a random system so over the long run we'd expect an equal number of of reds and blacks but over a small enough sample you could very easily get five blacks in a row for example and if you're betting on black you might chalk that up to good luck or if you're betting on red you might chalk that up to, to bad luck but generally the word we use to describe that is variance so variance might go your way it might go against you and over a large enough sample over a long enough time, generally that variance is going to even out. So that is your process uncertainty. The other type of uncertainty is called either parameter uncertainty or epistemic uncertainty from the field of epistemology, the philosophy of knowledge. And that's the uncertainty that comes from the person building the model, their understanding of the underlying real world process being either incomplete or incorrect. So it doesn't really apply to things like dice and roulette wheels. Because those things are carefully controlled to minimize parameter uncertainty. The only way you might get that is things like manufacturing defects or or things like loaded dice or biased wheels. Uh, yes. That don't really, uh, as far as I know, don't really appear too
1: often in the real world. Not, not anymore. Back, you know, hundred <laughs> years ago, you could. There, there's, I love stories like that where there's a roulette wheel that's just worn a little funny and it it hits a number more often than it should.
2: And yeah, Andy and and really might be blowing up ever. all the casinos in Minnesota with, uh, with bias uh, cross table. I'm not going to blow up his angle, so I'm going to act like it doesn't exist anymore.
1: <laughs> we don't need enough um. craps here. Yeah, that, that, maybe that's my saddest part about this whole thing. It's funny, like, there are people dying all over the world, and I'm throwing a pity party because I didn't get to go to Vegas. Like, yeah, one, no. one trip I had planned for the spring, so yeah. Casinos have not seen much of my money. Saved me a bunch of money, I guess, so. Yeah, they're Silver hurting. Lining. They're really
2: hurting. It's not good. Um, but anyway. Where you get more epistemic uncertainty is where you're predicting complex real-world phenomena like weather or elections or sporting events or, in our case, the spread of a disease. And the thing about epistemic uncertainty is that it's very, very difficult to quantify because you are literally talking about unknown unknowns here. And the best way to think about epistemic uncertainty comes from uh, a guy named Nassim Taleb, and I'm gonna apologize in advance if I come off as a bit of a Taleb fanboy uh, on this because yeah. I certainly am. Uh, his work has really influenced the way I think about uncertainty and probability more than anybody else out there. Um, but his advice when it comes to epistemic uncertainty is, don't focus on the probabilities because they're impossible to estimate. Instead, focus on the payoffs. So look at what happens if you're wrong uh, on either side of of sort of the equation. So if we bring it back to sports betting, uh, next example I like to use is player props. So uh, our friends at Circa, who is just doing a great job with uh, doing the best they can these days, putting up lines on
1: chess and Esports, uh, esports, today,
2: and yeah. yeah, yeah, all kinds of futures. They put up some futures on Tom Brady uh, a couple of days ago, and his his passing yardage total for the season. I think it was something like forty two hundred, uh, which, works, which works out to two hundred and sixty three or so per game, assuming a sixteen game season. Um, which makes sense. His career average is around two sixty one, and you know you can balance his advanced age with uh, maybe the improved quality of his receivers on the on the Bucks. Um, but the big assumption here is that he plays 16 games. And he can't <laughs> play more than 16 games uh, unless something really weird happens in the season. But he can certainly play less, uh, especially somebody, what is he, 42, 43 when the season yeah. starts? Yeah, he's so a um, yeah, He'll be 43, yeah. yeah he's he's uh, certainly uh, <laughs> an, an injury risk at that age, no matter how much of an Man he's been in his career. And uh, so there is a certain probability. I don't know what it is. There's a probability he plays 15 games. The probability he plays 12 games. There's a probability he plays zero games. Um, I don't know what those numbers are, but what I do know is that the universe of surprises that would help the under is way more vast than the universe of potential surprises that would uh, help the over. So when it comes to things like, uh, like player props, especially seized long uh, player props, the 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 arrow of epistemic uncertainty tends to point me in the direction of the under because you can get you know injuries you can get benchings you can get all kinds of stuff um, that would tend to help the under uh, more than it would help the over and a lot of these numbers uh, you you would think tend to be generated with the starting assumption that he plays a full season and, and certainly the likelihood is he will play a full season, but that likelihood is not a hundred percent. Um, we don't know what it is, but that's, that's really what, what Taleb is saying where, yeah. you know, don't worry about the probability he plays two games instead of 16 worry about the payoff, worry about the outcome. And in this case, the outcome is the under on that yardage number is going to be a lot, hundred percent probability if he plays two games uh, this year, even Tom Brady can't throw for 4,000 yards over two games. Um, And and, and so really it's a, it's a shift in thinking when it comes to this kind of thing where you can just run in circles, trying to build all kinds of complicated models to estimate probabilities that are really unknowable. Uh, And you can just sidestep that whole problem by thinking less about probabilities and, and more about payoffs. Uh, another example, a bet that I just put down this week, uh, one of the sites that has the U S election betting has a bet of Trump versus the field. And, you know, everyone assumes it's going to be Trump versus Biden at this point, as we speak in, in late March. And while that's certainly the most likely matchup, Trump is 73 years old and, and there's a virus going around that has a pretty, uh, Horrible prognosis for seniors. Trump is not in the best physical condition to begin with, despite what he would have you believe. Yeah, so, and he's not, having he, press
1: conferences with a bunch of people every
2: night. It's true. He's not following his own uh, social distancing advice. So it's not a lock. As you know, I hate to be morbid here, and I hope the Secret Service doesn't come after me for this for stating a back. Oh, facts. you're in Canada, you it's not a lock that he's even alive on on election day um on top of that he's also not the most mentally stable you know he might wake up one day and decide he just had enough of this whole thing he's not going to quit he's too proud for for that but i could very easily see him making up some kind of fake medical condition and using it as an excuse to resign no oh, i you know i'd love to keep making america great again but i'm just not in good enough health so i grudgingly pass the torch you know and these these types of things would help this field bet against Trump because you know you're ostensibly betting that he gets beaten in the election, but you get these kind of bonus wins if he resigns or if he dies. Um, and, and you know you go back to Mormon. Taleb. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> you go back to Taleb, and he's got this whole concept called anti-fragile, which are things that can benefit from unexpected surprises, and, and this is the kind of thing. Where you know if you're taking Trump versus the field, you know you you are vulnerable to these kinds of, of unknowns that might not be priced into the yeah. line. But if you're taking the field against Trump, you, you could potentially benefit from those things. And and yeah. you know if you want to take it a step further, I think I posted this on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. The uh, the coronavirus middle, where you take the field over Trump and you take the Republicans over the Democrats, no. uh, which are both approximately pick'em. And it's kind of like having a middle on a point spread where, um, you know, if if, if uh, Mike Pence wins the election, you'll get both sides of that bet. Yeah. 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 And I mean, all and of this did, could be what repeated. What did we have you
1: on for last time? Dim, I'm, um. I'm trying to think of if we actually talked about this on air or if it, it just kind of sprung up as we chatted on behind the scenes on Twitter, because all I can think about is with all your examples, the player prop using Tom Brady, the, you know, the anti-fragile, you know, it, it makes me think of when we did get to discussing regular season win totals. And if you, you know, when you start dealing with the team, you know, you have all those things that lean towards an under. Like a quarterback gets hurt. Uh, you know, any amount of players get hurt. Just, the, you know, the skill positions they look to fill with the draft or free agency don't work out. Like there's so many negatives. And there's just... You know, like you said, and it doesn't seem like there's some magic positive. Like, there's not some positive where Tom Brady gets to play two extra games against a bad defense to bump those yards up. So, yeah, I, don't no, know I mean, if, I, mean I don't remember the, if we talked about that, but, man, it changed my worldview on betting regular season win totals.
2: I don't think we did. In fact, actually, it was a great pod you had last year with uh, our German friend, Summa, and it led to a lot of great discussions that, that, that we had offline about uh, season win totals and all kinds of other things. But, uh, yeah, there there are certainly, especially for, for the good teams, they are vulnerable to a lot more negative surprises. So you look at the Ravens and you might think, yeah, you know, assuming nothing weird happens, they're, they're, they're priced appropriately at, I I forget what the total was. Is it 11, 11 and a half? And you say, yeah, that's, that's probably about right. Well, what if Lamar gets hurt week one? Yeah, you know, there, yeah, there are, there are things that could that could just plummet that number, and there aren't really that many things that that could like unexpected surprises that could raise that number. Yeah, um, no, I 100 agree. You could say that that Lamar's breakout season uh, last season was a bit of a positive uh, outlier, and you know those things can happen. But mm-hmm. if you look at his expectation priced in for this year, can you know he can get much better than that? He could. But I, I think there's a lot more bad stuff that could happen than, than good stuff that could happen. Yeah, no, I agree with all that. And kind of sticking
0: with your Tom Brady example, um, we have 20 seasons of data. I mean, this is one of the things that epistemic, I feel like epistemic uncertainty, at least kind of in my field of, of kind of domain expertise, I guess, like if we had infinite earthquakes in the database, like the epistemic uncertainty, we could pretty much get it, pretty close to zero if we just you know if you have enough of a sample size you can do enough testing work work out all of the um you know a a broad enough understanding of all of the physics that are at play and you can winnow that epistemic uncertainty down to where all that's left is aleatory variability all that's left is the randomness um similarly i feel like you know hey, you got 20 seasons uh of data on tom brady there's one of them he's ended the season with a uh uh, season ending injury. It happened to be in the first game of the season. Um, so I feel like you have a pretty good number, 5% chance probably. Right. I mean, maybe you, you, maybe you kind of tweak that and say, okay, well, quarterbacks who are over the age of 38 have a bigger percentage than their career average. So you see, so you tweak it in some way. I mean, like, I feel like there is a way to approach and come up with that number, uh, and at least build it into your model, I guess. And similarly, I guess, when I think of epistemic uncertainty in sports, I kind of look at the over the course of a season, right? Like, let's, let's go with college football team, for example. Like, the, I, you know, at week one, new coach potentially, whole new roster, like, there are a lot of moving parts, there are a lot of unknowns. And even if you spend your entire quarantine, you know, researching the Big 12, there still may be some questions about Baylor's new coach's approach and you know the new players that are on that roster, and you're going to have to make some assumptions to inform some quantitative model if you're going to go bet the Big Twelve or the the Baylor win total, right?
1: Yeah, and you have a you have a big damn puzzle. You have, you have, a, <laughs> you have a you have a five hundred piece puzzle, and you have you know four hundred parts. Right. And you're but, just, uh, you just you just gonna have to make up some of it because you, there there's always gonna have to be assumptions you'll make.
0: For sure, for, but, for uh, sure there is. Yeah, but week one, is. the epistemic uncertainty is massive. But by week ten, we know a lot, right? Well, you know, I'm going to we, keep that. Got, yeah, we've <laughs>
1: you're gonna, got you're gonna a, get a lot couple of extra pieces every week, right?
0: I guess is is. I don't is think you a,
1: ever finished the puzzle, though.
0: Yeah, I guess you know, like, what is the relationship between sort of the sample size, data quality, and all these things relative to to the epistemic uncertainty? And you know, I guess, what are some some ways to model it and to to specifically reduce it, and or and or make it work for you.
2: Yeah, and it's not a black or white thing. I mean, you're right that, that things like, uh, Tom Brady's propensity for injury may be a little bit more, um, easily estimated using quarterbacks of his age, body type, whatever. You know, there, there's, it's not black or white between, between epistemic and aleatory uncertainty versus things like the, uh, the coronavirus situation that, that was just kind of out of left field. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, how, how do you make it work for you? It really goes back to looking at payoffs by looking at, you know, you, you you want to put yourself on the side where the surprise is more likely to help you than to hurt you. So you're absolutely right um, about week one having way more epistemic uncertainty than let's say week 10. And, and, you know, I haven't done a study on this, but one hypothesis I might kind of present is that if you take um, larger underdogs in the early weeks of the season, it is more likely for a uh, quote-unquote bad team to overperform and a good team to underperform than than for a good team to overperform, if you will. So, um, you know, well, really, I don't sense. know how, how profitable that may have been over the last 5, 10, 20 years. Um, but, you know, you, you want to be... You want to look at where the market could possibly be wrong, and don't bother trying to figure out the likelihood that it's wrong, because it's impossible, but you figure out you know, what what possible sources of error are out there, and which direction would they push the number? Um, yeah, no, there, like there, are books, there are books that put out the entire season worth of look-ahead lines before the, the season even starts, and maybe you go through and you say, okay, well, if uh, you know Baltimore is minus 17 hosting Miami in week 14 or something, you just blindly take the points because <laughs> you look at kind of what those teams could look like by week 14. Yeah, maybe Baltimore will look as good and Miami will look as bad as you think they are today, but maybe they won't. And if you look at you know, the line of 17, <laughs> ask yourself, is it as likely to be plus 27 as it is to be plus seven on game day and if the answer is no then you know that might start to inform your your thinking of how you might approach those
0: i think last year rams at cardinals the look was like week 13 or 14 and it oh was God. expected to be uh rams on the road as 13 point favorites and it you know game got there and it was rams minus three <laughs> and they ended up covering the thirteen, ironically, but but because it was you know, it was a, it was a bad spot for the Cardinals. But um but yeah, no, you're you're right in that uh you know that the there, presumably, there is value on dogs week one in the NFL, yeah. just generally, and and also because people tend to make bets in week one of the NFL that is like, I like this team, they're good, I don't like this team, they're bad, <laughs> therefore, I'm gonna lay the points on the team that I think is gonna be good this season.
1: They should have done it with the Ravens yeah. week one. <laughs> <laughs> was it was like, 59 nothing? <laughs> Something terrible. yeah. Well,
0: that's a that was it
1: works hour. out sometimes, no. Um, and I, I think, God, every year I say this, and We'll have time this summer. We have to hit some. We have to hit some of those. Uh, what do you want to call look ahead, it? Like Look
0: aheads. Ahead, yeah. Game I, of the
1: years. I think we identified like five or six just talking, and all of them moved our way. Where it's oh, just yeah. like Everyone. these are these are silly. Like, and then we didn't bet them. And you yeah. know, it's not like they all won, but certainly got a a good chunk of CLV, way more than you would get. You know, just between betting on a Monday morning and Sunday game day.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think off the top of my head, uh, you know, of a handful that, yeah, the of, of the of the handful that I remember moving a pun. Uh, if you you know, if you were betting, you know, into six plus point middles, um, you know, you were hitting the middle on more than twenty percent. I mean, more than five percent. Like you were absolutely. Oh, man, that's another great. Yeah. You were absolutely
1: making great point <laughs> um, as far as hitting both sides.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that Tom Brady example because I was going to bring it up later when we got into tail risk because I was just thinking, like, yeah, that's a, you know, you could have had a really great model for the 2008 Patriots. And it would have been like, this is the best team that we've ever, you know, I've ever seen on paper to that point. They brought back the entire 2007 undefeated uh, roster effectively. And, you know, you could have at the time assumed, ah, well, there's a 5% chance Brady gets uh, gets hurt in game one. Uh, and you put that into your model, and maybe you look at it all, and you're like, "Well, yeah, I'll, I'll live with that risk." You know, I'm still betting them to win the Super Bowl, or I'm still betting them to win the uh, the AFC or the AFC East, or you know, make their win total over, right? Like, they, you know, you could have you know modeled that perfectly and still landed in the tail of the distribution,
2: right? Sure, and the, I mean the books aren't totally you know ignorant to this. I'm sure they're they're at least thinking about it, if not reflecting in their lines. Um, yeah, yeah. The question is to what extent they're doing that and is, are, they, are they doing it enough? And unfortunately, like with most things around epistemic uncertainty, it, it's really hard, if not impossible, to ever prove one way or the other um, You know how much influence that the likelihood of an injury is having on, on this number. You, you just really don't know.
0: So when you're projecting, when you're, when you're modeling something in sports betting of any kind... How important is it to you to think of, I'm going to model the distribution rather than just, I'm going to get a best estimate out of this process?
2: Uh, it depends on what you're doing. And I think when, it, it's always better to have a distribution than a, a point estimate. If for no other reason, then it gives you a much better reasonability check. Because you know, if, if you say, oh, I expect Tom Brady to pass for 280 yards and he passes for 240, you can say, well, that's, that's pretty close. You know, I'm good. But if you have a distribution and you gave, uh, you know, 0.1% likelihood to less than or equal to 240, and that's what happens, it it gives you much more of a Bayesian framework to go through and and evaluate and update your own models versus just having a a number. But beyond that, in terms of application, um, most bets that are offered these days are are totals or spreads or, or money lines. They're they're really focused on either the median or something close to the median of that distribution. Um, one thing that I've just started dabbling in is this whole idea of points betting. Um, <laughs> out of the oh, God. Yeah, you
1: bring some of those up, they give me heartburn. <laughs> and,
2: and, you know, as hard as they are to to bet, they are equally hard to to make lines for. Because oh, yeah. when you're betting something like, you know, you get one point for every uh, point LeBron James scores over 25 and a half in a game. Well, it's not good enough anymore as the bookmaker to get the median of the distribution right. You have to get the mean, which means you essentially have to get the whole distribution right, which yeah. is way, way more difficult. Um, and it's a really interesting, you know, modeling proposition. I, 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 mean, I made about two or three bets before the whole thing got shut down. So I, I'm in no position to say whether my model is good or bad. Um, well, what about the
1: football did, ones that you'd brought up? I thought that was way more interesting than just the, you know, I'm, if people aren't familiar with points betting, it's just like you said. If you bet an under, the most money you can make is if whatever you bet under lands on zero and you get the whole kit and caboodle times however many points the line was set at. But you had ones where there was multiplication involved, where it was yardage yardage times touchdowns, and then they set it as a number. So this guy could have – he could set the all-time rushing record. And if you bet the under, you cashed as much as you could possibly win if he didn't score a touchdown because, you know, times zero. So that was. I thought. I thought. I'm having a real
2: impact on you. I'm. I'm flat.
1: (laughs) Those were because those were those, and 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 the same thing goes. Like the guy could rush for 40 yards, but if he vultures three goal line scores, that's 120. And if the I think the line on some of those is what 50, 60, somewhere in there. Yeah, they offered backup running back. That that one made me nervous. Like like I said, that stuff gives me heartburn, but. Yeah,
2: and you know when you when you do things like yards times touchdowns, it makes the it ratchets the complexity up another notch. And for me, as a better, the more complex the better, no pun intended. Um, yeah. Because yeah. the 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 more different offerings are out there in a book, the more that I can select against them as the better. So the more complex a line is, the harder it is for them to to really nail that line. And if they're offering two hundred different props for the Super Bowl, and I I see three of them that I like. Um, you know all that uncertainty can can sort of accrue to my benefit. And, and you know, those yards times touchdowns um, bets. I mean again, one of the reasons I was on the under for a lot of them is the probability of an injury. if someone gets hurt, he's yeah. probably going to end up scoring zero uh, touchdowns. And, and so when you're on a number on, the, on an under number on the, on those points betting, and the guy leaves the game in the middle of the first quarter, no, that's an, that's an auto win for the maximum possible amount you can win.
1: You know, you <laughs> 60 yeah, units and that, that's the other half of the equation. Yeah, the other half of the equation is the, the reward, the possible ROI that you could, it's not just, hey, you won your stake or, you know, 0.909 of your stake. You could win massive amounts if, you know, you have a, Uh, an occurrence like an early injury or something along those lines or just the game script, the game, however the game plays out just turns into where the other team or the team has to throw the ball a lot and that guy sits on the bench and you just sit there, you know, counting $100 bills or whatever they have up in Canada, 100 loonies.
2: (laughs) We have 100 with the brown.
1: But they are, oh, they, they are, I forgot they're different colors. Yeah. So <laughs> well, that stuff, that stuff is like you said, it's way harder to model. And I think a point that maybe we didn't harp on hard enough is, uh, you know, when we talk about player props or derivatives or any of this stuff, like we give the books and the bookmakers a lot of credit. But I mean, what you said there, they're super hard to price. If something's very hard to model and it's gonna take you a lot longer to model than just some points distribution, if you're looking at totals for an NFL season three quarters of the way through it where you have a lot of info. Like you know, a player prop for a backup running back when you're adding multiplication, that's not just hard for you or I. That's super hard on the on the bookmakers. And like yeah, we uh-huh. that's, that's that's where I think that's where edges are to be found
2: for For sure, and, and all of these concepts around epistemic uncertainty and fragility and anti-fragility, as the complexity of a system ramps up, the stakes really increase like the it becomes more and more detrimental to be fragile and, mm. and beneficial to be antifragile, the more complicated a system is. and again, we'll get into this a bit when we talk about the the uh, current events going on in the world, but I think there, there's a, a lot of that going on too, where, where as the world becomes more and more complex, um, the, the fragility of all the systems that make up our world can, can really become more impactful.
1: Mm.
2: Well, that that's a decent that. segue. Yeah. Uh, applying then this
0: understanding of epistemic uncertainty and how it relates to predictive models... Uh, what do you think of the uh, experts in the pandemic modeling space? Have they done an over, you know, overall? Have, do you think they've done a satisfactory job of capturing the current state of the outbreak?
2: Well, I think they have an impossible job, and that that's that's really the tough part. So, so the the process, sorry, the process of saying di- Canadians trans- friend, be proud. Yeah. Well, thank you. The process of disease transmission is is fairly well understood which is why a lot of the models give pretty narrow estimates for things like the percentage of the population that's infected or killed. The problem, though, is that this thing is called the novel coronavirus for a reason. It's called the novel coronavirus because, to the best of our knowledge, it didn't exist until a few months ago. So the level of human knowledge about how this virus behaves is relatively weak, So you have a model that is solid, but it relies on a lot of assumptions that might be uh, less solid. You you probably see the term R-naught or R-zero thrown around all the time. It's a measure of the contagiousness of the disease. And the unfortunate reality is that no one really knows what that R-naught is. Different people have estimated it at different levels in different ways. Um, so the parameter, the r naught parameter used in the epistemology model, is itself an estimate. So any variability in in the r naught is really a manifestation of epistemic uncertainty that will contribute to extra variability in in the result of that model, which is uh, you know the estimated number of uh, either Americans or world citizens that are that are either infected or or killed, whatever the model may be. Um, Another big component of the model is the scope of transmission. So every year in the world, there is more worldwide travel than there was the previous year. And every plane crisscrossing the globe is a potential vector. So any model that is built on, on data from however many years ago is not going to be quite as applicable for the state of the world in 2020. And then you have that balanced out by the impact of social distancing, um, whether it's how compliant the population is or how effective the practice is. And again, these are things, social distancing, um, as far as I know, has never really been practiced uh, on the type of global scale that it is right now. So when you have a model and you're trying to account for, okay, how much does it help that people stay at home for a month, there, there is really not a lot of historical data to go on. So you have to make even more assumptions about that. And, and the things that you're, you're estimating are unknown and constantly changing. And that really starts to snowball the epistemic uncertainty in any projections of what's going to happen with this coronavirus. And, and that's just the assumptions. So if we get to the, the, the data itself, so the two data points that are most widely reported are the number of cases and the number of deaths. So take them one mm-hmm. at a time. But the number of cases that gets reported in the news, what that really means is the number of positive tests. And we've all read that the availability of tests is an issue, uh, more in some locations than others, more at some times than others. But um, what's obvious is that the more severe cases are more likely to receive a test than the milder cases. So the analogy I like to use is if you have a car insurance policy with a high deductible, There are accidents that happen and that that cause damage below your deductible amount, but the insurance company never sees them. So when the insurance company counts up the number of accidents that it's observed, that number is by nature understated. So you have to fill in the gaps in your knowledge by estimating the unobserved uh, portion of, of the count, which is easy enough to do for car accidents because there's all <laughs> kinds of data out there, but yeah. it's pretty darn difficult to do for something like the, the coronavirus. And, and so what you get is all kinds of comparisons that you see every day. What does the curve look like for the U.S. versus the U.K. versus Italy versus Canada? And, and all those comparisons are going to be severely biased. By any differences in in testing protocols. So they're really not worth as much as as you might think just by looking at them. So if we go to the number of deaths now, it seems like it's easier to measure, either you're you're dead or you're not, but that measure is going to have its own set of problems. So how do you tell someone who died from the coronavirus apart from someone who died from the flu? if that person was never tested for the coronavirus um how do you tell someone who died from the coronavirus apart from someone who died from some other cause while they were infected with the coronavirus and then there's a time lag so uh, the stat that you you read a lot is well i have x number of cases and y number of deaths so x over y is the fatality rate so you might see a certain region has 10,000 reported cases and 200 deaths so you know is your fatality rate, it is not your fatality rate. And and the simple reason is that there's a time lag between your diagnosis and and the death. So some of those 10,000 will eventually die from the coronavirus, but haven't died yet. So what that 2% estimated fatality rate is, is actually a lower bound. It can't be less, but it can be more as those 10,000 cases that are still kind of in progress resolve themselves either through recovery or or through death. Um, And that's before we even start thinking about politically motivated interference with reporting the correct numbers. You have some places in the world, such as Japan, that have a vested interest in keeping those numbers low um, while they were trying to salvage the the Olympics. Um, And then you have some other countries in the world that, that have not always been the most forthcoming with this type of information. So, so all this is to say that, that pretty much every number you read in the media about the coronavirus is going to be wrong in, in, in some way. So your natural follow-up follow up for me will be, well, okay, you jackass, so tell me what the right number is if <laughs> all the other numbers are wrong. And, and <laughs> I wish it was that simple. I, I don't know what the right answer is, and, and, and nobody does. And this is, this is sort of what's maddening sometimes about the world of epistemic uncertainty is it's easy to tell what the wrong answer is. But if someone says, okay, well, then that's not the right answer. What is the right answer? Well, well, you don't know, and and nobody knows. So all you can really do is not put too much faith in any number or set of numbers that you might read, and also, again, make yourself as robust or even anti-fragile as possible by looking at the payoffs um, rather than the probabilities, and looking at the impacts of well, what if these numbers are wrong? What if they're too high? What if they're too low? You know, what can I do in my own life to to make sure that I am um,
1: prepared for that? Mm.
2: No, that's that's very fair. Um,
0: that all makes total sense. Did uh, yeah, it's,
1: it's just kind of being it's being stuck in a weird spot as far as you know. Do you trust? Do you trust your leadership? Do you trust the information you're getting? You can be as robust as you want. Like everybody wants information, but nobody realizes if it's any. I mean, there's a lot of people who are fully putting their faith in information that may or may not be good and just running with it. And that's probably not helping things either.
0: Yeah, I know, though, no, for sure. Um, there was a 538 article a couple, I think it was a week ago. And they've re- they've done they've they've uh, followed up with the subsequent article where they're basically just you know they're using um, you know a panel of experts and you know generating opinions not unlike what say pinnacle would do if they wanted to set a line on you know esports or something right uh, and they're getting opinions from these twenty twenty experts or teams of experts and they're uh, and they're com- you know compiling all the data and last week's first article was absolutely wild and that by the time that they were ready to publish the article the estimates that they had gotten from the you know the panel of experts had all been completely they were all completely useless because they you know for whatever reason they had you know their inputs to their best estimate models were just you know wildly off but you know and, and maybe it was a change specifically in the policy you know and, and the availability of testing in the United States but like you know they were like yeah how many t- you know positive cases are going to be in the United States in March 29th and you know they're guessing numbers that by the time of publication had already been passed, uh, and so it was it was kind of sobering as someone who kind of you know works in this sort of prediction abstract you know rare, you know rare event space to see these experts be so wrong, uh, and I don't know I it was
2: uh it was it was a bummer I have to say <laughs> it, just well, was it was one <laughs> one thing I wish they had done they, they, they asked a bunch of experts for their, their, their uh, kind of median estimate their, their best case and their worst case scenario I mm-hmm. wish they had phrased that a little bit differently I wish they had asked for sort of your 95th percentile and your 5th percentile scenario
0: 90% now, then,
2: confidence but, interval around your because then set. it would have yeah, been yeah, easier yeah. to line up all these experts and you see that their you know, 10 to 90 or 5 to 95 confidence intervals don't line up with each other at all which then just proves that these guys don't really have a good handle on, on what they're talking about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I guess, I mean, is is it fair to talk about what the end member cases are? Because it does feel like there is a specific, you know, a specific subset of our, at least in the North America, than maybe worldwide. There's a specific subset who are looking at this through the most optimistic lens, lens possible because they want to restart the economy. And then there's the subset that's looking at this through the most conservative lens possible because they want to, you know, just, you know, prevent death and, and pain and, uh, you know, do do their due diligence to protect the, you know, the health and livelihood of the citizenry. Um, do you, I guess, is it fair to say that... Uh, i We have a reasonable bounds on those two end member
2: cases. Um somewhat. I mean you, <laughs> the The answer, like all these things, is we don't know. i mean we, we I think we have accumulated the the um you know a library of knowledge from the top experts in the field, and you know I think you can draw a reasonable range from from that. But, you know, could something happen tomorrow that just throws the whole thing into chaos? So, you know, I'll give an example, of one, one positive and one negative example of, of kind of future things that, that could change everything. Um, if it's discovered that this thing can reinfect people uh, and that there is no herd immunity, mm-hmm. well, that mm-hmm. changes everything because then you might yeah. never get rid yeah. of it. Um, you know, on the more positive side, th- there could be either a cure or a vaccine or both that is discovered at some point in time um, that, that could really shrink the frequency and or severity of, of these cases. So I think a lot of the estimates that, that you read are making some, some probably pretty good assumptions about the, the reinfection rate and the um, either possibility or length of time until we get some kind of treatment for this. But those assumptions could very easily be proven wrong you know, by the time this pod airs, sure. something could have been discovered that we don't know at this second. We'll
1: get it up right away. <laughs> <laughs> true. No, and it, I mean, just like going back to the Tom Brady thing, it doesn't, maybe it's not necessarily, you know, the Tom Brady gets hurt and that's kind of the, you know, he could get hurt, miss a bunch of games, but he can't make up games. He can't have extra games. I don't feel like everything is completely negative, but at the same time, that you know, there's just a wild assortment of uh, variables that can be thrown into it, and I think the the biggest thing I think about, especially with the the 538 article, honestly, every conversation I've had about it, it seems like people are making I don't know, I don't want to call it full on false equivalencies because they're trying to make an equivalency, but it feels like we're just tr- trying to extrapolate way too much from countries, you know, how they reacted to it, whether it's Korea, China, or, you know, God forsake Italy, Spain. Like we, we take that and you try to, it's just to me, round peg, square hole, you know, the U S is honestly, it's like 50 little countries, you know, with, with different legislation, not legislation, but, you know, leadership in each state is making completely different choices, You know, you have different geography, you have different population density. And then we're just trying to take what Korea did and saying, well, that'll work across this giant country that has, you know, diverse populations, population densities, different sized cities. It seems just like that's a complete fool's errand. No, don't disagree with that at
2: all. It's human nature, like we, we we are sort of programmed to seek answers to these questions and, and you know whether you go to religion or government or data to to find answers you know this is This is not going to change anytime soon it's it's just sort of hardwired into into human nature okay
0: so. I guess to summarize some of the key points here, and to put up in, and you guys correct me if you have a different understanding of this, or if you feel like it's unreasonable for us to, you know, make these conclusions. Um, the data that exists regarding this pandemic is flawed; is maybe fatally flawed in a lot of ways. There's really there's no subsample you can identify. Even to the even to like the Diamond Princess cruise ship as like the perfect petri dish of this is how this you know this is how this you know responds right like even that has flaws like there's really there's there's problems with the data that are that you know you can't reasonably construct a a rational forward projecting model and some of those problems are number one the numerator which you mentioned in terms of the fatalities uh, is potentially missing. Uh, it's potentially missing a huge subset of folks who aren't classified as having, uh, having died because of COVID uh, and or other, you know, other uh, deaths that are a, a result of, you know, the oversaturation of, uh, you know, medical attention on, uh, you know, just the overwhelming of the medical system writ large uh, is resulting in additional deaths. So you, you're never going to get uh, a reasonable number on the top. Uh, and then on the bottom, uh, you know, short of testing every person in the country and getting, uh, you know, with a test that doesn't even exist that can identify, you know, the an- antigens and people who have had it, uh, you're never going to know what the denominator is. And so getting a mortality rate to make risk-informed decision-making as a government is pretty much impossible. Is that, is that fair to say?
2: That, that's that's totally it, you know. And these are these are complicated questions. You know, am, am I am I still going to blame Rudy Gobert for ending sports? Of course, I am because it makes me feel better. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, that's it's a, a
1: consensus. It might level
0: simplification. Hey, we're going. We might look back on that and say that saved a lot of people.
1: I, I
2: hope they I call like him the Vector from now on, Rudy the Vector Gobert. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, uh,
0: he ruined March Madness. Maybe I mean it. Probably was going to stop in the middle anyway, but. Uh, uh, I would. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we look back and say, "Man, we were not taking it seriously until that moment." Uh, and so it may have been a, a net positive when it's all said and done. It's tough to say. He may have saved millions um, of lives. He may have saved millions of lives. Exactly. Um, and uh, yeah. So you know, I guess uh, it's just. Uh, it's it, this is crazy because. You know, this feels like the most important thing that's happened in recent memory. Uh, and the range of outcomes from this point in time is impossibly wide. Like, we have no idea where we're going to end up. Uh, and uh, that's, all, uh, that's all due to uh, one of the worst times to have one of the biggest uh, epistemic uncertainties for one of the most important issues, I would say. Uh, well, yeah. Um, on that fun
1: note, <laughs> yeah, dude, you're blessing everybody in here. Well, yeah I, mean, yeah,
0: I think uh, California looking good. California's looking good. California's uh, looking good. Yes, I'm at least. Uh, I may regret saying this, but uh, I'm 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 feeling pretty positive every time I wake up and look at the uh, per capita numbers in California. Um, well, we anyway.
1: off, off air. We this got brought up, and I've been kind of wanting to get the like, where we do. Yeah, you know, like wh- wh- you know, it seems like we're pretty unprepared. Not, yeah, I don't want to delve this. into the politics of it, but you know there are people like, oh man, who could have seen this coming? Well, like if you read, like there was plenty of people that saw this coming, <laughs>
0: yeah, right, years ago. Even as it was here, they yes. were talking about it in December uh, as this is a real case, you know, real uh, you know situation that we need to prepare for. But yeah, no, it's a. Uh, that there has been a propensity for a lot of people to kind of try to absolve blame and say, "Oh, this is I act God type of stuff," and no one could have predicted this. This is a black swan event. I've heard that thrown around a lot, but is it really? I, that doesn't that doesn't check out to me. I, the black swan event is uh, you know a nuclear reactor uh, you know going down in Fukushima. Uh, because they have generators on site that have the wrong, you know, the wrong prongs to to hook up to keep the uh, the cooling pools, uh, you know, with with water. Like like Black Swan event is you know multiple points of failure on a system with lots of redundancies. This seems like it was inevitable. Am I
2: crazy, Matt? Uh, you're not crazy. Like everything else, it's it's not a simple question to answer. Could we have predicted this? And and so if you look at Taleb himself on his Twitter feed, he he's very. Um, adamant about pointing out that no, this is not a black swan event, and, and that in fact a, a massive pandemic was not only predictable but inevitable, given the amount of interconnectedness and and fragility that exists in the world today. And when I say fragility, I mean you know people living paycheck to paycheck. You have this whole concept of just in time uh, financing and and. Uh, inventory, you have all this optimization that was labeled as waste reduction. But what it actually did was it eliminated the the buffer or the safety margin that really would have come in handy at at a time like this. So the example I want to use is is McDonald's. So when I was a kid, I would go to McDonald's and, and I would order my food and then they would serve me and then the next guy would order after I was done. Seems quaint, doesn't it? Um, you know, a few years ago, <laughs> they they would take my order and then I would stand off to the side and they would take the next guy's order while they were making mine. And and, and even now, the whole thing is done on computers and they might be working on ten orders at, at the same time, which is really super efficient as long as everything is going as it's supposed to go. You know, all it takes is one person to mess up an order or you know one cook to call in sick. And the whole system gets totally screwed up. You know, I've been at McDonald's multiple times where it would take 20 minutes after I ordered before I would get my food compared to like 30 seconds when when I was a kid. I can barely even go to McDonald's anymore because, you know, it's a mockery of the whole concept of of fast food. And and this is a textbook example of of the age we're in right now, which is the, the kind of golden age of optimization where it's creating systems that look a lot better on paper, but they're becoming a lot more fragile to these sort of hidden risks that are not really built into the model, um, but are real. And and you find out about them when it's too late. And and this is what we're dealing with right now on a a global scale. Um, So optimization creates a system that's optimal until one thing goes wrong and then then all hell breaks loose. So the, the whole world has been shut down for about two weeks now, which is really not all that long of a period of time in the grand scheme of things, and and just look at the damage that has been done to the world um, from from people not being able to go to work for for two weeks. So I I think from that point of view, it was predictable, and and so it doesn't really meet the textbook definition of what a black swan is. Um, I think the more black swan-ish pieces of this whole thing is the 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 speed at which this thing spread across the, the the globe and the the phenomenon of social distancing that took place and is now taking place because you know if you if you go back to the start of this thing yeah the idea of a pandemic was in everyone's mind at least ever since SARS in uh, 2002 or so. But if you ask people, well, when this massive pandemic happens, what's what's the world gonna look like? I don't think many people would have predicted this the, 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 the whole world would be in this sort of social distancing thing and 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 be shut down. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with that at all. Um,
0: do you think that in general the that I, I guess you know it to me, it sounds like, uh, you know, a lot of the failures of, you know, certain segments of the economy in terms of just basically whether they realize it or not, making them, you know, making their systems, uh, especially fragile, uh, kind of comes down to not appreciating or, you know, carefully evaluating or having, uh, an, you know, having, a, a, an understanding of how to evaluate their tail risk. Is that a fair? characterization and, you know, if if maybe we need to do a little dif- definition
2: of tail risk? Um, yeah, I mean, tail risk is, is really the the outer edges of the distribution, the, these rare events that, that are not impossible, but become harder and harder to estimate the probability of. And it's, you know, similar to this idea of a black swan, which is something that is totally unpredictable until it happens. And a lot of these definitions are, are kind of semantic, you know, is it a, a tail event or is it a black swan? It doesn't sure. really make all that much of a, of a difference um, i think either way this is something that that on a global scale was was really um
1: unprecedented
2: yeah
1: yeah just just in in the vein of you know we've talked about the 538 and some of the problems with sensor data sampling bias like <laughs> Uh, news you can use just for the listener, (laughs) you know, like what, what opinion would you have? I, I, we asked, we said we weren't going to make you do too much for opinions, but what advice I guess would you have as far as, you know, reading the information you're reading, you know, for the the average person who doesn't have a, a degree in epistemology or understand all the stuff with the, you know, like an actuary would with all this data, like, what should they be looking for to, or should they just kind of ignore everything and listen to the authorities and stop reading all these studies that people are putting out and nobody knows what they're talking about and it's all just a bunch of curves and charts that people are guessing at?
2: Well, it never hurts to, to, to read information. Like I'm not saying to, to, to put your head in the sand, but just take everything with a grain of salt and just understand that you're reading different people's interpretation of what's going on and that nobody really knows for sure.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's a good take, I think, because how about, there's, uh, there's too many people that are just saying, well, this guy, he's a doctor or he has he has, yeah. a, he has a PhD. <laughs> he works for a university in England that I've never heard of. But yeah, all of a sudden, right. this study is really important.
2: Yeah, and I'll, I'll, bring, I'll bring up one more Taleb thing because it's really appropriate here. It's something he calls the carpenter fallacy. And, and what he says is, if you really want to understand um, how roulette works, do you ask a carpenter? Or do you ask uh, a probability expert? Well, you ask a probability expert, even though, you know, the, the roulette table was built by a carpenter and the carpenter sort of knows the the ins and outs, the domain knowledge of sort of how this table was built. But the, real-world process of what's going on here has nothing to do with carpentry. And, and same thing here. I mean, a doctor will, will tell you the best way to treat a case, for sure, and diagnose a case. But how to interpret the data that is coming from all these different places all around the world, it, it, it's kind of the place where the skill set of a medical doctor kind of doesn't, doesn't get you there. You need someone who's more skilled at, at data analysis.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess, I think, how about this for a strategy? Is it fair to try to seek out, um, you know, opinion, read reading news and reading information and and seek out, um, you know, technical um, expertise that that hits both ends of the spectrum here? So basically try to find someone who you who reasonably is capturing the worst case scenario and try to find someone who's reasonably projecting uh, a more positive outcome. Like, And you can probably just sift all of this down to just the one basic assumption, right? Which is, uh, you know, what percentage of the, you know, known case, you know, what percentage of cases are are known, right? If you're assuming that we know all of the cases that have existed to this point in time, then your numbers are going to be, you know, the worst case scenario. And if you assume that we know 10% of the cases that exist to this point in time, then you're probably going to be on the very most optimistic end of the scale, I would guess, just because your mortality rate is going to be
2: an order of magnitude lower, correct? It, it helps. It's not a bad as you look at a, a range. Um, it, it sort of, it, it helps, but still, even, even the so-called best-case scenario could rely on a set of assumptions and a set of information that could be totally different tomorrow. Like again, if someone discovers that this thing can get, can get reinfected, then, you know, even the worst case scenario you read today is probably not even close to what, what could happen. Mm. Okay. Great point. That's a great point. Okay. Well,
0: uh, any final thoughts on this? Any, uh, you got a prediction for us when we're going to get sports back?
2: Um, so there, there are lines up there, some books, uh, and, and so the market consensus, I would say, is looking like around June. Uh, mm. I, I have no opinion on uh, on how good of an estimate that is, but I'm I'm just telling you what the market is saying.
0: Andy, what's your price for uh, NFL starts on time, week one, with or without
1: fans? Oh, I minus five hundred NFL starts. Wow, I can, I can see, I can definitely see some problems with mini camp or possibly the
0: preseason. Wow. NFL starts on time. minus five. Do you think they'll have fans?
1: Uh, that's not so sure. That's
0: 50-50. Uh, yeah. Okay. So you're going minus 500, it starts on time, plus 100, it starts on time with fans.
1: Yep.
0: Okay. Okay. Somebody asked me that the other day and I said plus 200, it starts on time and plus 500, it starts on time with fans. So there's your range of uh, uncertainty with from the experts. <laughs> "Quote unquote," That's, that was tongue in cheek. Um, well, right. thanks, Matt. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. That really yeah. always a pleasure that talking was, to you guys. And uh, hopefully a, this, next time yeah. I come on, we'll uh, we'll have some real sports to talk about. Oh, for sure. So. And uh, yeah, I think uh, uh, I think this is uh, this is going to prov- this entire experience is going to pr- provide uh, just a an entirely new perspective uh, when uh, when life kind of goes back to normal. Well, you know, the the whole um of uh you know doing a hard day's work and then getting to sit down and watch and bet on sports is going to feel uh it's going to feel like a breath of fresh air uh when we finally get there relative to what's going on now so i can't you know it'll it'll be that much sweeter when things return to normal i guess next year's march madness in vegas is going to be that much better so uh fingers crossed at least that uh
2: hopefully i'll join you there
0: yeah i like it um all right. Well, appreciate all your uh, uh, all your insight and your expertise on uh, the 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 the, uh, the, the in these uncertain times. And uh, this was a touchy subject, but I think we did a very fair job of covering it without, uh, you know, putting our foot in our mouth. So, with that, uh, I look forward to this all being a totally different world tomorrow.
2: Thanks, guys. <laughs> Stay safe. All right.